Castaway Show with Dave Dolan. Hello, Anza. You're tuned in to Coyote Radio 97.1 on your FM dial. And I'm Dave Dolan here with your weekly castaway show. I've got fishing reports, some recipes, a few boating tips, and um, got a new topic to talk about tonight. So stay tuned for this episode of the castaway show. Well, I'd like to get right into my fishing reports at this time. You know, this um, period here, we're having our first real winter weather of the season in Anza. We've had quite a bit of wind and rain and cold temperatures. Unfortunately, it's been a lot more bluster and cold than it has been rain, which we could dearly use in our lakes up in this area. But it is nice to get a change in the weather and something rain out of it. And there are reports and forecasts that we're going to have some more rain during this period. I wasn't able to contact my usual source for fishing reports, but I don't think things have changed a whole lot. You know, on our local lakes, are still continuing to get trout plants. Most of them are on your every other week schedule. I was down at Lake Skinner this last week. They had just planted some trout down there, and they are going to have trout plants again on February 28th, March the 14th, and March the 28th. That plant on March 28th will be their last trout plant of the season, and that's pretty typical of most of our inland lakes here. Some of them will plant through April, and hopefully starting about April, we may be getting some trout up there at Lake Hemet since their season starts a little bit later, and I don't think I'd want to be up at Lake Hemet in this cold, windy weather anyway. But all the other ones, your Diamond Valley, still Lake Cahuilla, they're getting their usually every other week trout plants. I do know the one exception would be down in San Diego, and that's Lake Wolford. They have three trout plants scheduled this month. Each one is 1,500 pounds, so that would be a real good place to target for trout fishing. I know on the ocean front, things have been a little scratchy out there, and with the uh, weather that we've had lately, with a lot of the wind, there hasn't been too much coverage, and quite honestly, that's another place I wouldn't want to be out during some of these storms. I do know on the... Um, half-day and three-quarter-day fishing trips out of the San Diego landings, they're kind of scratching out. Um, They're getting some sand bass, picking off a few yellowtail here and there. And the three-quarter-day boats, they're called them full-day boats now, the ones that run five in the morning till five in the evening, they're picking off a few yellowtail at the Coronado Islands too. But I think the uh, half-day boats, they're really going to be waiting on the March 1st when they have the opener for rock cod in the U.S. waters. But remember, you can fish rock cod in the Mexican waters and some of the San Diego boats are targeting going down to Mexico where they can fish the rockfish. I do know that also the long-range boats out of the San Diego landings, they're in their long-range trips at this time. These are the, uh, right now they're running anywhere from 12 to 15-day trips. Some of the reports I've heard, they're doing real well on the big tuna. They call them the cows, the over 200-pounders, or the super cows. Those are the over 300-pounders. Also doing pretty fair on the Wahoo. But, you know, this is a whole different ballgame doing these trips. They're pretty pricey. I mean, you're looking uh, even $3,000 and up for these trips. But these are the ones where you go out big game hunting for those big game boys out there. So one real 
event you can do is check out at the landings to see if any of these long-range boats are coming in. And um, it's quite an event to watch these boats when they unload. To see those two and 300-pound tunas, it's quite a sight. So, you know, while we're contending with some winter weather here, it is a little slow and scratchy on the fishing scene, but I'm sure things will pick up in the future once we get some nice weather and, and the water lays down for us. Well, on a recent show, I talked about that big fishing pier we have in our backyard. That'd be Baja, California. It's right right next door to us. I've had some really phenomenal fishing down there. Well, I'm going to go to the other end of the spectrum right now and talk about the most awesome place I've ever been to in my life. It's got some pretty great fishing up there, too. I want to talk about Alaska. I've been really lucky because three of the last four years I've been up to Alaska Two of those summers, my wife and I, we got in the RV and we spent three and a half months on road treks getting up there. The other time I did a 15-day trip down in southeast Alaska. It was strictly a fishing trip with the guys. But um, as I tell everybody, if, if you're into the outdoors, whatever you've done before, once you go up to Alaska, your level of the outdoors is going to be up to such a high level there's nothing down here in the lower 48 states that can touch what you're going to see up, up in Alaska. I know to drive up there, the Auto Club, they turn this as the ultimate road trip in North America. And believe me, it is. But you've got to have the time to do it. On both the summers where we drove up to Alaska, for our first trip, we drove a total of 10,850 miles. The second time we drove up to Alaska... Well, we knew kind of what we wanted to see, so we cut our distance down. On that trip, we only did 10,150 miles. Now, the whole thing about Alaska is just sheer size of it. If you put a map of Alaska onto the map of the United States, you'll see that east to west, Alaska would stretch from the Pacific to the Atlantic, and north to south, you would go from Mexico to Canada. It's quite a ways to get up there. I mean, if you're driving from Southern California, say you're going up the I-5, well, you think, well, Seattle, that's quite a ways. Well, when you get to Seattle, you're one-third of the way up to Alaska, and you just did the easy part because you had the interstate. And also, once you're up in Alaska, there's several places you may want to see, things you've heard of, the Kenai Peninsula, Denali National Park, Valdez, well, these places are quite a bit of a distance apart from each other. It's almost like if you were in, say, San Diego, and you said, well, we're in San Diego, let's, um, let's do a little side trip to Salt Lake City, and while we're in Salt Lake City, maybe we'll drop by Portland. Those are the kind of distances that you're talking about when you get up to Alaska. But I know some people have said, my gosh, you drove all the way up there? Well, all I can say about that is, it's the journey. It's not just the destination. Some of the wild country you go through, going up through uh, British Columbia, the Canadian Rockies. I love the Yukon Territory. It's just places that'll just take your breath away. It's the greatest place on earth. I know, in, for example, though, in the Yukon Territory, it's not even a state, not even a province. It's so wild. It's just a territory. I'm not sure how many square miles it is, but I would say it's comparable in size to the state of California. The Yukon Territory has 36,000 people in the whole territory. Thing is, 27,000 of them live right in the city of Whitehorse. It's pretty sparsely populated. Now, 
I know a lot of people that I've talked to, when you're talking about Alaska, a lot of people said, well, I've been to Alaska. I took a cruise ship up there. Well, I'm not going to knock cruise ships. I've done a couple of cruises, and they are what they are. They're pretty luxurious, and you get pampered really well. But the fact is, when you go up on a cruise ship, you're going to probably make three eight-hour port stops. That's not seeing Alaska. There's too much else up there to see. But the thing is, if you're thinking about driving up there as we did, you've got to have the time for it. I've got a friend of mine, he and his wife, a couple summers ago, after we did our first trip up there, they wanted to do Alaska. And he was retired, but she worked for the school district and she had six weeks off. And they thought, my gosh, six weeks, that's plenty of time. Let's go up to Alaska. Well, to drive up there and back in six weeks, he told me it was basically nothing but get up, drive 400 miles, sleep for the night, and get up and drive again. So you've, I've got to stress, because of the, the, um, the size and the distance, you've got to have the time to do it. Now, there's really two Alaskas, the way I like to term it. There's southeast Alaska. That's the portion that it's kind of connected to a British Columbia. And then there's what I call mainland Alaska, the interior now, these two Alaskas don't have anything in common with each other. It's kind of funny because um, I talk to people up on the mainland Alaska, the interior, and they say, oh, uh, southeast Alaska, that's not even part of Alaska. That's just northern Seattle. It's part of British Columbia. They ought to move the capital up here. And then when I was in southeast Alaska, I talked to people in Sitka that never even been to Anchorage. So they're really two different worlds that, really don't have a lot in common with each other. Now, the one thing about it, going up to Alaska, you can drive up there as we did, but southeast Alaska is very remote, and there's a whole lot of small towns on all these islands in southeast Alaska, but the only way to get into southeast Alaska is either by airplane or by boat. The nice thing about doing it by boat is there's the Alaska Marine Highway. When I went up there to southeast on the fishing trip, I met some guys, we had uh, four days at a fishing lodge, but I spent the rest of the time on the Marine Highway, and I went to several of the different small towns in southeast Alaska. That Marine Highway, it's really something. That's where people driving up to Alaska, say from Washington, they'll get on the Marine Highway with their RV, and then they go up the Inside Passage. But also, since this Marine Highway is the only means of transportation between the islands, you know, say in uh, the town of Petersburg, they need a tractor. Well, that tractor gets loaded on the, onto the ferry, and it goes out there along with the tourists and the motorhomes. And it's really a neat way to see the southeast. So that would your southeast Alaska also is very, very wet. It's true rainforest. I know the town of Ketchikan, I was there, and um, it is the wettest city in the United States they average 15 feet of rain a year. It's really green, green, but you pay a price for it. I know when I was in uh, Ketchikan, I was there for a few days. I actually had a little bit of a break in the rain, and I went walking around the town. I had short sleeves on, and I stopped at a street corner, and this one lady looked at me, and, uh, you know, I'm a California boy. She looked down at my arms and my tan, and she goes, uh, you're not from around here, are you? And I said, well, no, how'd you guess? And she said, well, up here we don't tan we rust. So anyhow, if you're going to go up to southeast Alaska, take the rain gear because you will get wet. Now, 
that is in contrast to the interior, the mainland Alaska, the big part of Alaska. This is where we spent the majority of our time, and there are places there that are virtual deserts, and there are places that are real nice and green, but it's a real whole world apart from what southeast Alaska is like. Now, southeast Alaska, it's great for fishing there. Most of your fly-in fishing resorts, they go into places like Ketchikan, Petersburg, Sitka. This is big salmon fishing down in these areas. So those are your opportunities for fishing there. Now, the fishing in Alaska, the, the salmon runs, they're very, very seasonal. If you want to catch sockeye salmon and you go up there to anywhere in Alaska before the run starts, you're, guess what? You're not going to catch anything. But if you go up during the runs when the, they're coming from the ocean up the rivers, it is just phenomenal fishing. Now, there's three different, four, actually four different types of salmon that are targeted in Alaska. The big one would be the king salmon. Now, these are the largest salmon. A lot of them, I've caught them in like 20, 25-pound range, but they do go up in the 60 and 70-pound range. They're very seasonal, and there are a lot of um, slot limits on these. And a lot of times, since they're a very protected species, a lot of times the rivers will get closed off. They'll have size and slot limits. So when you go up for salmon fishing, you're going to have to target or pay attention to what the, re- the uh, regulations are on that. You also have the uh, coho salmon, the silver salmon. These are also an ocean-going salmon that come up rivers. They're pretty good July and August. These are a larger salmon, larger than the sockeye. You can catch these anywhere 8 to 12 pounders. These are a real aerobatic fish. When I've caught them, they go airborne. It's almost like catching a Dorado. They're a lot of fun to catch. Then you have your uh, humpback salmon, the, the pinks. Now, these are a lot of what you get in your canned salmon. A lot of them are hatchery raised. Um, they're really kind of an interesting fish. When they're out in the ocean, they look like just a regular salmon. But once they migrate up rivers, they develop, the males develop a big hump on their back. They're really quite a sight to see. But my experience I found is that once they go up rivers they to spawn, and that's where they die, once they start up the freshwater, they're virtually an inedible fish. My favorite salmon to catch, and I caught a lot of these, would be the reds, the sockeye salmon. These, when you see salmon in the store that's that deep red, orange, almost a um, glowing color, these are your sockeye salmon. And eat, eating salmon, they are my favorite to eat. Now, the biggest place to catch your sockeye salmon would be on the Kenai Peninsula. The Kenai Peninsula is just south of Anchorage. This is called Alaska's Playground. I found out that 80% of the world's commercial catch of sockeye salmon is right off the Kenai. When they come in there, they're really thick. Now, the um, Kenai River is probably the most famous for catching your, your uh, sockeye salmon. I have fished the Kenai. It's, it's about a two-week run while these salmon come up. As I said, if you get up there a week too early, a week too late, you're not going to catch anything. But if you get up during this run, now they have these um, light beams that go across the river. The fishing game up there really monitors their fishery real close. So they know exactly how many fish are coming up. They limit the catch so that a certain amount will get up to be able to spawn. 
But there are certain days I've been up there where they've had runs of over 100,000 fish a day coming up the river. Now, there's a type of fishing up in Alaska. Maybe you've seen pictures of it, and I took part in it. This is called combat fishing. Now, (laughs) you know, this is maybe where you've seen these pictures of people fishing virtually shoulder to shoulder. And you go, my gosh, how do they catch a fish? Well, there are so many fish coming up, you do catch fish this way. Now, I wouldn't want to have to go fishing this way all the time, but my first experience at this, it was it's such a it's almost like a carnival atmosphere. Everybody out there just, you know, you got to cooperate cuz you're so close to each other. But um you do catch your fish this way. Now, the way these um, sockeye salmon are coming up the river, they're, you know, they're coming up the spawn. They're coming up along the sides of the river, just maybe knee-deep, waist-deep water, and their mouths are open as they come up. Well, they are not feeding on anything, so what you're doing, you're casting out with just a hook on, but you've got to tie on like a bead or a piece of yarn, because what you're going to do is you're going to snag these fish in the mouths. If you snag them on the side of their body that's called foul hooking and you have to release those fish if you don't and you get caught you're going to probably lose your equipment and get hit with a pretty hefty fine but as long as you snag them in the mouth it's fair game fishing but if you're fishing with just a bare hook then technically you're trying to snag the fish so that's why you put a bead on the line or tie a piece of yarn and guess what you now have a lure and you're legal to fish that way so um I know one of the times I was I was doing this fishing, actually I got out in a kind of a remote area of the river and there was this, just me and this one lady just, oh, maybe 50 feet up above me. And, um, you know, there's just a couple bushes in between us and we were both, they call this flip and rip fishing. Well, I was flipping out there and I, you know, I caught a salmon and this thing went wild and crazy. Well, you know, you're fishing, doing this kind of fishing, you're out in the water and waders, you're up, you know, at least waist deep in water. Well, when I caught this fish, the fish goes darting around, and all of a sudden, this lady screams, he swam between my legs. Well, (laughs) it was really quite a, well, comical thing afterwards, but, you know, this fish went in between her and wrapped around her legs a couple times and then took off again. Well, fortunately, I was able to cut off the line and got her out of that, and we had a good laugh about it afterwards, but um, that flip and rip fishing is really, (laughs) it's quite an experience to do it. Now, as I said, this is called combat fishing. This is what you've seen pictures of before. It's an experience, but sometimes I do like my solitude when I'm fishing, so I wouldn't want to have to do it all the time, but during that run up the river, that's that's the kind of fishing you're going to be doing. Another place I've caught a lot of sockeye salmon was in the city of Seward, Alaska. Now, cruise ships do go into Seward, But um, it's a real favorite of mine. It's right next to Kenai Fjords National Park. I've done some hikes up to some beautiful ice fields. In fact, one hike I took up to is the Harding Ice Field. It was a really steep trail. It was only four miles long and, again, 3,000 feet. But up at the top there, you come out on the, the Harding Ice Field, this one view, it is a the ice field is 720 square miles of ice. It's one of the most awesome sights I've seen I've ever seen in my life. Just really beautiful there. But um, anyhow, that's the scenery around Seward. But around Seward, they also they're on a Resurrection Bay. They have a big run of sockeye that come up there and go up their rivers. There, 
you, when you're fishing in the bay, you use these large treble hooks with a big sinker on it, and you're casting out and you're trying to snag the salmon. Now, when you're fishing in the bay, it's legal to snag them anywhere in the body, but once they go up the river, you have to snag them in the mouth. Don't ask me to explain why, but that's just the way the rules are. But I've had some really good fishing on the uh, sockeye salmon and seward. Now, as I said, the sockeye is my favorite eating salmon. In fact, I think sockeye salmon has replaced tuna as my favorite eating fish. After the sockeye, I really enjoy the, uh, the coho salmon and king salmon too. But believe me, the sockeye, that's tops on my list. If you ever see it in a store that's wild caught, if it was frozen, make sure it was vacuum sealed frozen. But it's well, if you can get some good quality sockeye, it's well worth the price. Also, another big fish that's targeted up in Alaska would be the halibut fishing. Now, you've probably seen pictures of these huge halibut up there that they catch. I know the uh, trip I did to southeast Alaska, that was. Well, it was with a group of guys. It was a fly-in to a resort where it was just um, four nights, three days of fishing. All the other guys, they just flew in, fished, flew home. I didn't. As I said, I did the uh, Marine Highway and saw several other towns around there. But um, we caught both the, the king salmon on that trip. We were a little too early for the, the uh, silver, so it was just the king salmon. But we also caught the halibut. One guy in our group caught a halibut. 360 pounds. That was a real barn door. The halibut fishing, that's pretty much all season long. You don't have to target them as you do your salmon fishing. The halibut, they live on the bottom. They're just like big vacuum cleaners down there eating what they can. So they're not dependent on what time of year you get up there. The halibut fishing that I did, it's really something when you target these big halibut, you're using super heavy-duty fishing gear. You're using hooks that are almost the size of, of hay hooks. And for bait, we were using whole salmon. So, you know, your target, you know, big equipment, big fish. Now, the halibut fishery is very, very highly regulated up in Alaska. There are size limits. I know when I was up in uh, Sitka and we were fishing for them, they had to be under a certain length or over a certain length, but basically you can only keep them under 35 pounds or over 300 pounds. We had to throw back a lot of 70 and 80 pound fish, but you know, my one buddy caught the big 360 pounder, but the rest of us caught our under 35 pounders. So we had a nice pick on that. But um, those are your main targets up in Alaska. There are other fish. You can, there are a lot of bottom fish, your rock cod, your yellow eye cod. There are also, there's really big ling cod fishing up there. Now, these ling cod, they're a very aggressive fish. They almost look prehistoric. You know, you can catch ling cod right off the coast of Southern California, but believe me, you're not going to catch anything the size of an Alaskan ling cod. I know some of those big halibut we brought up, they had big gashes in their body. And I asked the boat captain, what did that? And he said, oh, it's the lean cod. They go after this huge halibut. <laughs> so uh, lean cod, they're ugly, but they sure do taste good. So anyhow, um, to do these lodges, most of what you're going to see for Alaska fishing, one thing you've got to keep in mind, Alaska is expensive. There's no way around it. I won't try to sugarcoat it. They do have such a short season up there, they've got to make their money when it's available. So you've got phenomenal fishing up there, but I know, for example, the one lodge I went up to fishing, 
for the number of days you go up there, when you add in your flight up to Alaska, the lodges are all inclusive. You know, your your um, very nice accommodation, your meals, your fishing, your guide. But you add in, you know, your flight, your lodge, tips to the guides. You're probably going to be looking at a thousand dollars a day. So it's a great experience, but save up your money to do it. But if you want to do it the other way, like my wife and I did. All I can say is it's definitely a trip for retirement years. You know, you're, you've got to allot the whole summer for this because if you try to do it in any less amount of time, you're just going to be rushed, burn out. It just won't work out. One alternative you have if you want to do the RV trek, but you, you're not retired yet and you just had the two or three week vacation. I know, um, especially on the Kenai Peninsula, just south of Anchorage, the, the big playground where everybody likes to go fishing, Probably half the RVs up there, you can see that they're rentals. There are a lot of RV rental places up, in, in, especially in Anchorage, where you can fly in, you can get the RV and spend your two or three weeks RV in, see quite a bit, do quite a bit of fishing, and then when you're done, fly back home. It'll save you the long drive up there. Personally, I like the drive. I love going through all that virgin country in BC, Alberta, and the Yukon Territory. But if you're limited by time, that is an alternative. But if you want to do Alaska, as I said at the start of this, there believe me, I'm an outdoorsman. I don't want to say I've done it all, but I've basically done everything west of the Continental Divide when it comes to big mountains, lakes, rivers, and all that. And believe me, there's nothing in the floor 48 here that can touch Alaska. In fact, when we um, drove up there, coming back home, you know, we wanted to target the Canadian Rockies, which is very beautiful. I mean, Jasper, Banff, just really spectacular country. I've been there before, but after seeing Alaska, it was, oh, they're really pretty. But and believe me, by the time we got down to, say, Yellowstone National Park, now Yellowstone's a nice place, but after seeing Alaska, I went through Yellowstone and thought, you know, what is this place? <laughs> There's nothing like Alaska. Another great experience I had in Alaska, apart from the fishing, is, um, and I would recommend this, if you ever go to Alaska, don't miss this, that would be Denali National Park. Now, Denali, formerly known as Mount McKinley, volume-wise, it is the biggest mountain in the world. It rises basically from a flat plain at sea level, and it goes up to 20,203-foot elevation, and it's only about 150 miles south of the Arctic Circle. I did a, uh, both times that we drove up there, I did a flight tour out of Talkeetna, Alaska. This flight tour, we went up in a, a de Havilland DC-3 Beaver, or excuse me, the uh, Otter airplane. We went up and we circled the summit of Denali. Then we went down, landed on a glacier. When I was done, I said, that's it. The most spectacular sight of my life. I'll never see anything that comes close to this again. So that's all the Alaska experience. I talked about a lot more other than just the fishing up there, but there is a lot more than to do than the fishing. But if you like halibut and you like salmon, there's nothing that can come close to it. Alaska, it is the last frontier. Well, it's recipe time. Talking Alaska and talking salmon, I've got a salmon recipe for you. How does a margarita salmon sound to you? Well... Here's, here's the recipe. Take one cup of tequila, two cups of sweet and sour, and a, one cup of triple sec. Sound pretty good like a margarita? Well, we're almost there. 
Get your salmon fillet, put this into a container or a resealable plastic bag, put your salmon in there, keep it in there and refrigerate it for maybe about three hours to let it really soak into the salmon. Once you get your salmon out, the, out of it, let it air dry for a few minutes. Then get your frying pan, get your olive oil in it, get it heated up, then throw your salmon in there and sear it. Now remember, don't overcook your fish. You'll want to flip it one time. And if you're really good, I don't know if you should try this unless you know you're going to be good at it, but with all this um, tequila in there, as you flip it, you may even get a little flame up there too. <laughs> it's kind of spectacular to see it, but um, if uh, you start your house on fire, don't blame me. So anyhow, as you're uh, cooking it on the second side, I like to get a little lemon and lime, squeeze that on it. It'll help sear it. And um, sounds like we just made the perfect margarita, except we've got a really good piece taste good tasting piece of salmon in there i like to serve this alongside of some avocado tomato and either some pasta or rice and this makes a really great dinner your margarita salmon okay this will be my boating tip for this show i took my boat down to lake skinner this past week i haven't had it on the water yet this year which i don't like one thing about it though even if i'm not getting it on the water i always like to start that engine at least every 10 days or two weeks you don't want to let them sit too long because if they do, that impeller down in your lower unit is going to uh, have a tendency to seize on you, which is a repair job. But um, one thing about it, since I did go out and take it out on the water this week, a really nice thing is when I hooked up the, my trailer and I plugged it in, all my running lights work. My turn signal work and my brake lights work. That's one thing you may want to check if your boat's been sitting very long, especially up here in Anza. You know, we do have critters up here that like to chew things like wires. So take a look at your wiring bef you know, before you plan on taking your boat out because they do prone to, uh, to have lights that don't work on you sometimes, especially if they've been sitting for a while. So that's my boating tip. Start your engine up and plug it in and make sure those trailer lights are working. I've enjoyed bringing this show to you, talking about Alaska. You know, whenever I get around my friends and um, we start, well, I start talking about Alaska, I always caution them. I say, look, if I start talking too much about Alaska, just tell me to be quiet, tone it down, because once I get going about Alaska, I can be nonstop. But it is such a phenomenal place. It's For me, it's the trip of a lifetime, and I know I'm going to do it again. There's some really great fishing up there, salmon, halibut, the big lean cods. There's so much else to see and do up in Alaska. It's the trip of a lifetime, the ultimate road trip. So until my next show, I'm looking forward to uh, casting away again, and we'll talk some more about the great outdoors and all that fishing out there. <laughs>